Father, and he was great for you because we have no ability. Oops. So Lord, let your word be spoken and keep me from saying anything that would not be profitable in Christ's name. In his final letter to his protege, Timothy, the Apostle Paul wrote, All scripture is inspired of God and profitable for teaching, for proof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate equipped for every good work. In Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, Paul reminded them and us that by grace we have been saved through faith and that is and this or that this is that is our salvation that we experience is not of ourselves it is the gift of God not of works results of works so that no one can boast we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto and here's the word again good works which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them Early on in, on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus commanded, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. The way that our light, the light of Christ in us, shines through good works is in our daily walk. Which is simply a way of saying the life of Christ in us is demonstrated or you could say reflected in how we live day to day in this world. And in fact, how we live day to day among others in this world who do not live with a vital dependency upon the Lord. At the close of his earthly ministry and some of his last instructions to his people, Jesus reveals that good works are synonymous with bearing fruit. Namely, the fruit of the Spirit, for just as our good works are the means of glorifying God in Matthew 5, so he says in John 15, verse 8, My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. If I'm a believer in Jesus Christ, if I'm one who professes him as my Lord and Savior, the world, that is, men and women in the world who do not live in personal relationship with Jesus in the world that he has sent, excuse me, we should never underestimate, never think lightly of the witness that our lives has to hold, has to those in the world. And it's probably important to remind ourselves that the world is not necessarily out there, but may reside with us on the home front in the form of unbelieving spouses or parents or, or children. To put it another way, how you and I live matters. Remember Peter's admonition in 1 Peter 3.15? He says, sanctify the Lord in your hearts. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. And always... Be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that's in you. 
yet with gentleness and reverence, and, and keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. We set apart Christ as Lord when in our walk we reflect how He walked. When we show in our actions and our attitudes the very Spirit of Christ, walking in step with Him, living like He lived. John said it like this in 1 John 2, 6. The one who says he abides in Him ought to himself walk in the same manner as He walked. In his second epistle, which I'd like you to turn to now, Peter likewise demonstrates a concern for the lives of those who were his recipients. He is concerned that their lives evidence godly virtues, the fruit of the Spirit, and, and that they not be taken off guard and drawn away to the principles of unscrupulous men who have invaded the fellowship and are influencing the lives of the believers, not just by what they say, but by the immorality that they're, they're demonstrating, they're exhibiting to members, and even soliciting them to be part of their immorality. Now, a little bit about Second Peter. It's his last epistle, written probably about 64, 65 A.D., It's written according to what we see in 3.1, probably to the same recipients of the first letter. What's happened in the church? Am I doing something that's causing that? Okay. What's happening in the church is false prophets have arisen. And as mentioned, they're drawing people away and seeking to destroy their What Peter seeks to do is to fortify their understanding of what an unfailing faith is. He's going to spend chapter 2 and chapter 3 focusing on these false prophets, but he understands and knows that the best remedy, the best precaution against falling to the error of false prophets is a right understanding of faith. And so what he wants to give them is a picture of unfailing faith. So in chapter 1, he does that, and we're going to be looking basically at 5 through 7, but I'll read to you 1 through 11, because in 1 through 11, Peter divides the, the idea of unfailing faith into three sections. There's the foundations of unfailing faith in verses 1 to 4. There are the features, or you might say facets, of unfailing faith in 5 through 7. And then there's the future for the person who possesses unfailing faith. His goal is, is to have them in a place where their faith does not falter, as we'll see in the text in just a moment. Now, a little bit about Peter, I think, is in order. You know, of all the apostles of Peter, he is probably the most intriguing and colorful, right? I mean, just think about it. He was impetuous. He's known for his impetuosity. Remember when Jesus comes walking on the water? And Peter says, Lord, if it's you, uh, tell me to come to you. Jesus says, come. And Peter steps out and is walking on the water. 
And then the Bible says he, he looks around, he sees the wind, and he begins to sink, and he cries out, Lord, save me. And we're quick to, to see Peter's, what Jesus called, little faith. But sometimes we forget nobody else was walking on the water to Jesus. And Jesus does call it little faith, but there is faith. Peter was a man of faith. We know that because when you get to Matthew 16 and Jesus is asking, whom do men say that I am? You know how they were different ones respond. And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, which solicits from Jesus a, 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 a providential blessing, a divine blessing. You are Peter, and upon this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So Peter is a man of faith, little faith. And Peter's impetuous. I mean, I don't know how much time elapsed between Peter's confession, but just a few verses later in Matthew 16, Jesus, after telling the disciples that he must go to the cross and be crucified, Peter takes him aside and says, Not so, Lord. That'll never happen to you. And of course, that solicits from Jesus an even stronger rebuke than Peter gave to Jesus. Get behind me, Satan. You aren't savoring the things of God, but the things of men. And I suppose in that one phrase, the Lord put his finger on Peter's problem, and not just Peter's problem, but our problems that so often we savor not the things that are of God, but of men. This impetuosity and and Peter's idea that he knew more than the Lord comes again when we're in Luke chapter 22. As you know, Jesus is is headed to the cross and, and Peter and them say, why can I not go with you? And Peter says, I... I I'll never deny you. I'll I'll go with you to death. And the Lord says, really, Peter? He says, before the cock crows, you are three times going to deny that you even know me. What's interesting is in Luke's account, Luke gives us something prior to those words. He He says to Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan has desired to have you that he may sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith fail not. And when you are converted again, strengthen your brethren. It's in response to that that Jesus says, oh, I mean, that Peter says, oh, I'll go with you all the way. But what I want you to see there is in those episodes, in that episode in particular, Jesus thought he knew, I mean, Peter thought he knew better than Jesus what was going to happen. Well, you know what happens. At the trial, Peter denies the Lord three times and the scripture says that, that Jesus turned and looked at him and Peter wept bitterly. I would have to say in that moment when Jesus turned and looked at him, Peter must have realized the Lord really did know him better than he knew himself. And what's more, He really didn't know the Lord like he thought he knew the Lord. The reason I say all that is 
I'll take you to one more episode before we get into our text. John 21. Turn there with me. It's the last chapter in, in John's Gospel. You're probably familiar with the scene. The resurrection has occurred. The disciples, led by Peter, are fishing on the Sea of Galilee. They've, in fact, fished all night, and they've caught nothing. And Jesus appears on the shore, and as was not uncommon, he says, cast the net over to the side, the certain side, and and there was a, a tremendous catch of fish. By the way, this is highly reminiscent of what takes place in Luke 5 in Jesus' first encounter with the disciples. You know, he has preached in the boat, and then he says, he says, go let down your nets. And Peter says, Lord, we fished all night, uh, but since you say so, we'll do it. I'm paraphrasing there, of course. We'll do it. And, and he does. He comes back with a, a miraculous catch of fish, just like here in, in 21. And, and you know it must have have brought back to Peter's mind that episode in Luke 5. Well, after, well, and Peter, being impetuous as he is, jumps out of the boat. They say it was about 100 yards away. And he leaves the other disciples to, to pull the fish in. But notice something. In the first catch in Luke 5, Peter's response to Jesus was this. Depart from me. I'm a sinful man. And yet here, his response is he just can't seem to get to Jesus fast enough. And then something happens as they're sitting around the fire. You know the story. Jesus asked him three times. And most commentators will say this is Peter's reinstatement into the ministry. He denied him three times, and three times the Lord says to him, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, you know I love you, Lord. And he says, tend my sheep. And we don't know how much time lapsed. They may have eaten another piece of bread or whatever. And and the Lord says to Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, Lord, you know I love you. He says, shepherd my sheep, using a different word. And then some time it passes again, and we don't know how long, and, and the Lord says to Peter again, Peter, do you love me? And Peter, now listen, Peter doesn't just say, Lord, you know I love you. Peter says, Lord, you know all things. What was Peter saying? Peter was saying, what I realize now that you knew me back then when I told you I was a sinful man depart from me. I realize now that you knew, you really knew I was going to deny you. I realize now, Lord, you really know everything. And he says, Lord, you know I love you. And Jesus said, Tim, my sheep. What a beautiful way in which the Lord brought Peter back to himself. And what's really beautiful is that you see a changed Peter, but not completely. Because the Lord says, Peter, follow me. And they take off walking down the shoreline, apparently with John in tow. And Peter, uh, apparently having a conversation with the Lord, turns around and sees John 
and says, and Lord, what about him? Right? And the Lord says to Peter, if I want him to stay till I come, abide till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Now, I want you to put all this together. I want you to put together how the Lord told Peter even before the crucifixion that Satan desired to sift him, but that he had prayed for him that his faith would not fail. And we know from the accounts in Acts, the first 15 chapters, and we know from the letters that we have, one of which we're going to go to today, that Peter's faith did not fail. Peter's faith became. But some would say, we really don't know how that happened. How did Peter go from a weak, little faith to a man of stalwart faith upon whom Jesus said the church itself would in many ways be built? Some suggest that that was he being one of the apostles, but... He clearly said on that day, you, Peter, and upon this rock, I'll build my church. So in some sense, Peter became that stalwart individual who led the church in many ways. And we see that. You see it all the way through Acts. On the day of Pentecost, he preaches fearlessly, right? The next chapter, chapter 4, he, he, he boldly proclaims Christ at the healing of the lame man. In chapter 5, he shepherds the church as Ananias and Sapphira, Sapphira under the influence of Satan seek to deceive and all the way through again even up chapter 10 of Acts Peter's faith is his understanding is even stretched a little bit and is it his relationship with Cornelius but but he understands better God's program in fact that understanding he takes with him into the Jerusalem council and it becomes some of the leading uh, influence for what the church did out of that council But how did Peter get from a man of little faith, impetuous, to a man of stalwart faith? Well, I want to suggest to you that if you will take time to read his first epistle, and you will read his second epistle, and you will see what he teaches, you will learn what he experienced. Why do I say that? Because Peter tells those that were elders in chapter 5 of 1 Peter, I who am an elder exhort you to shepherd the flock of God over you, right? He says, being an example, a sample example to the flock. So when we come to a text like we're going to in just a minute, actually very quickly, in 2 Peter chapter 1, I submit to you that Peter is sharing with these who were encountering Satan like he did in a way through false prophets. These whom we're going to read in a minute, he says, if you do these things that I say, you'll, you'll never fail. You'll have unfailing faith. I submit to you that what Peter is sharing with them is what he went through on his part that his faith did not fail. And when I say that, of course I mean in the power of the Holy Spirit. And by the grace of God. Again, three divisions. 
But let me read to you the text in 2 Peter chapter 1. I'll begin at verse 1 and read through verse 11. Simon Peter, a bondservant to those who have received, and notice this, a faith of the same kind as ours. Do you get that? Do you, now, now think back. The Lord addressed Peter's faith. I pray that your faith fail not. Well, the same faith, that same faith is what these people possess. By the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. That's the foundation of their faith. And then he comes to the the features or the facets of what this kind of unfailing faith looks like in the life of a believer. Now, for this reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, in your faith, in the faith you already possess, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. And then, in 8 through 11, Peter points to what will happen if they will do what he has instructed them to do in these verses. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. You'll never fall. Your faith will never fail. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. Now what I want to focus on today is 5 through 7, because I I know my time is limited. I'd like us to look at what Peter learned about these seven virtues These seven character qualities, that's how the NAS puts it, these qualities of faith that if they become and exist in our life, and incidentally, the text actually can be read, they already exist, but they need to be increasing, ever increasing, Peter says, in your life. If these are there, then you and I will not only have a faith that never fails, but we'll have a faith that supplies the works that will cause people to ask a reason for the hope within us. Again, picking up at verse 5. Now, for this reason, this very reason, writes Peter, 
applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. And in your moral excellence, knowledge. Hebert points out in his, he has an article on these verses. This phrase, for this very reason, introduces the duty to grow spiritually. That's not a word we sometimes like to hear, is it? But did not the Lord, through Paul, say in Philippians 2, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling? For it's God that works in you, both to will and to do His good pleasure. It stresses the logical duty involved in the divine bestowal of new life. See, that's what Paul, uh, Peter's talked about in the first four verses. He says, this is what you've gotten from God. The divine nature we receive must be daily exercised in the endeavors of moral living, says Hebert. Peter is anxious that they do not frustrate the grace of God by resting content with what we know James says. Faith without what? Works. Peter's phrase, applying all diligence, or as the ESV reads it, make every effort, is unusual language in that the verb occurs only here in the New Testament. And it is rare even in the Greek literature of that time. But Peter's meaning, notes one author, is clear. Growth and virtue is of utmost importance and deserves utmost effort. The writer of Hebrews employs the word in chapter 6, verse 11, when he exhorts his readers to show the same diligence, he says, so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. And he adds, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Interesting, like all that Peter has mentioned in, in 1 through 4, he mentions as well. You find that, by the way, as you read through the different apostles and writers of the New Testament giving instructions on how we should live, you always see them talking about the same things. And it always begins with the righteousness of Christ. Paul uses the verb form of this same root for diligence when he exhorts the believers in Ephesians 4. Listen, walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another, being, here it is, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Notice how Paul, like Peter in our text, grounds the command, the imperative, in the indicative. The imperative is the command. The indicative is the statement. As another writer notes, Paul uses the verb being diligent there in Ephesians 4 to characterize the total conduct of the Christian in the sense of actualizing his saved position, a fulfilling of what grace has opened up to him. Paul uses it in reference to God's calling in the believer's life, which must be secured and confirmed by the conduct of those who are called being diligent in something, says the writer, denotes the total demeanor of the Christian whose daily task is to ratify, activate, and practice his calling. 
So here's the question that we should probably pause and ask ourselves in light of Peter's command to add to our faith moral excellence or virtue and Paul's instruction on how to obtain it. What do I dwell on? What occupies my thoughts, my time, my actions? What is it I give myself in thought and word and attitude and action to? Look again at the text. And your faith supply moral excellence. In asking ourselves these kind of questions... It's important that we make sure that we don't just use the measure of what we see as whatsoever is true and honest and just and pure and lovely and of good report. The Bible says the entrance of His words gives light, doesn't it? It gives understanding to the simple. We can easily make up our own definitions of each of these qualities which Paul gives us in Philippians when he says whatsoever things are true and honest and just and pure and lovely and of good report, think on these things. But we don't want to do that. We don't want to do that on our own because Scripture says all flesh is as grass and the glory thereof. The grass withers, the flower fades away, but the word of our God stands forever. In pursuit of Christ, to pursue Christ with all diligence means we don't take moral excellence lightly. We realize and we accept the fact that as those who follow Christ, we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.10, give an account for everything that we've done in our body. Knowing that, we should probably, in fact, indeed, we should be compelled to say with Paul that our ambition, whether it's at home or absent, is to be pleasing to Christ. Back to verse 6. You know, guys... I don't know how it happened, but these notes got out of order. <laughs> and they're not numbered. So I'm just going to be straightforward with you. And you know what? I'm going to leave them. I'm going to leave them. I'm go back to the text. And begin again at five and move on. After saying supply... This very reason, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. Paul says, in your moral excellence, supply knowledge. Now, I mean, excuse me, Peter says. Peter, obviously, isn't talking about just any kind of knowledge. Because he's already spoken about the knowledge of Christ in the first verses of the text. And when you get to the end of the book, the letter, what does he say? Grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. How do we come to know and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ? 
We study his word. We look to him. We live as he lived. We learn to let the word be that which forms our thinking. In fact, what did Jesus himself say in John 17? Father, sanctify them through your truth. Your word is truth. So when we grow in grace and in the knowledge of Christ, what we do is we learn to live like Christ lived. We learn to walk like walked. Peter continues. Verse 6, and in your knowledge, self-control. In your knowledge, self-control. Robertson notes in his word pictures that this word is a compound of two words and it speaks about holding oneself in. Paul uses it in Titus 1.8 when he delineates the character qualities of an elder. He's supposed to have self-control. And the philosophers of that day, it usually related to three things. One was food, the other was sexual immorality, and the third was the tongue. Learning to control them, to hold one's appetites in. And it's very important that we almost pause and, and think about this, this just a little bit. Because it's, it's easy at times to think that this isn't important to let ourselves slip just for that moment. Just, just to, to yield just for the moment to that, that testing or that temptation. And in so doing, we find ourselves once again set back when it comes to the virtues in which we should be seeking. And in your self-control, perseverance. The word in the original is hupomeno. You know it as, as patience. If you take a King James Version, you remember the word when James says, let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. But as one writer says, the, the word itself isn't rightly taken or understood with just patience. Like when we think of patience, we just say, have patience, right? But the word is a compound in the original, which means bear under the testing. Remain under, literally, is the, is the combination of the two words. Remain and under. Which is to say, when God puts you and me in a a difficult and a trying situation, Peter is saying, like James would say, don't try to squirm your way out of it. Bear under it. Let it have, as James would say, its complete work in your life. And what Peter is saying, and as you're adding these virtues, and incidentally, this string of virtues was called what's called a 
it was a, a literary term, sorites, where you took one word and from that word you went to the next and then you went to the next and you went to the next. And it was as if they built upon each other. Some saw it as a ladder, rungs on a ladder. You know, dealing just adding to your faith, virtue, virtue, knowledge, and so forth and, and so on. And here he says, persevere. In other words, when you've, when you've worked through pursuing moral excellence, when, you, when you've given virtue the number one place in your life, and you find yourself understanding things about what the Lord teaches you relative to your testings and, and, and what it means to walk in the Lord, and you've learned to control your appetites, Stay with it. Stay with it. We live in a world where probably one of the main characteristics is people don't stay with it. They look for a quick way out. We've all kind of been there, right? Sometimes it gets heavy. Sometimes... Nobody knows but Jesus, as we say, right? And that is true. But we have been given the grace and the promises and the assurances of God that there's nothing that can come our way that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And we've been told by the Apostle Paul as well that if God is for us, nothing can be against us. And sometimes all God is saying is hold the fort. Stay in place. I'm doing a work in your life that you might not be able to see the outcome just yet. But if you will persevere, if you will persevere, though dark may be the night, light will come in the morning. In your perseverance, he says, supply godliness. This is a general term. In fact, one, one commentator translates it duty. But what, what, the way he gets that is it, it had to do with the duty to the gods in those days. Well, of course, that, what that means for us is, is we simply take everything that we do and we place it under the scrutiny of our Lord and we do it for our Lord. Whatsoever you do, whether you eat or drink, said Paul, do all to what? The glory of God. Let that be the plumb line by which you measure your day. Live a life of, of godliness. In fact, when you get into second when you go from Second Peter to Jude, as you know, they are somewhat parallel text. What's the one thing that Jude is forever speaking about? The ungodliness of those false prophets. Well, remember, that's what Peter is dealing with as well. There were these men and apparently women that were living in such a way that it reflected not a godly life, but an immoral life. And your godliness provide brotherly kindness. You know this word. 
It's Philadelphia. Brotherly love. It carries the idea of there's something mutual that exists between us because of a common bond. It's a, it's a familiar term, a family term. But not just family members as it was understood in that culture, but Peter understood it to be the family of God. And what Peter seems to be saying is when we have a godly life, when we have a, a life focused on God, it'll be a life. If, if, the, if, the, if the focus is vertical, it will become horizontal. John says as much, doesn't he? How can you say you love God and hate your neighbor? And you can read First John for yourself, but the entire epistles deals with this concept of I can say I love you in word and tongue and not do it in deed and truth. And what Peter is saying is, is part of an, a stalwart faith, part of an unfailing faith understands that that faith not only is faith in God, but it's faith that reaches out in love to our brothers and sisters in Christ. How did Paul say it? He says, as much as lies in you, do good unto all men. But what does he say? Especially them who are of the household of faith. We are to look out for one another because there is a bond that exists between us that Jesus said if it's properly manifested, all men will know what? That we are his disciples. If we have love one for another. Now, he no doubt used the word agape, which is the word that Peter comes to here at the end of his, or shall we say, at the top of his ascending ladder of virtues. Look at verse 7. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. I think the problem with this word is we've heard it so much preached about agape love that we sometimes truly do forget what it's all about. It's a love that seeks the good of the other person with no real idea of reciprocation or return. It's the, it's the love that, that reaches out and, and loves you Strictly for what's good for you. And it's the crowning virtue. It's the crowning virtue. You start with moral excellence. You start with a, a purity. You seek to have a purity of life. You go through these seven virtues. But the crowning virtue is love. That's why Paul could say we know that the whole law is fulfilled in what? This one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's learning to live toward others in the same way that, that God, through Christ, has loved you. While we were yet, what? Sinners. Christ died for us. And in that context, Paul said this, The love of Christ constraineth me, controls me. John said it like this. We love not because we first loved him, but because he first loved 
So if we find ourselves having difficulty reaching out to that antagonist, that person in our life that just absolutely rubs us the wrong way, we need to remember how desperately we rubbed God the wrong way. We need to remember that we have been called to love as He loved us. And when we do that, what happens? We basically are living a life of unfailing faith in which our focus is outward instead of inward. If any man will come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life will lose it. But whosoever will lose his life for my sake will find it. Peter didn't understand that at first. He had faith. He confessed Christ as Lord. But then he turned right around and, and expressed his own selfish ambitions. You will never go to that cross. Get behind me. You're not savoring the things which be of God, but the things which be of men. It's a battle. It's a battle for all of us. Because Paul himself said in Galatians, the flesh wars against the spirit, right? And the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary one to another so that we can't do the things that we ought to do. But Peter has given us a structure. I started to call it Peter's practicum. His, his plan for taking us from little faith to stalwart faith. And he gives it in this ascending ladder of virtues. Now, one more thing we have to say about them. It's not like you wait till you get one before you practice another. Because Peter says, if these are in you and increasing, the idea is, is we are to be about, if we are following our Lord Jesus Christ, practicing all of these. But what Peter is saying is, is if you'll work diligently. And he, and he does this again and at the end of his, 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 his letter in, in 3.14. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless. In other words, Peter says, you must take this not seriously, but with all your energy. This has to become who you are as one who has been called by God through Jesus Christ. This has to become who we are. Now, I think it's fair to say, and you might or might not agree with me, that we all have a long way to go. And why do I say that? Because going back to that verse in 1 Peter, sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart and be ready always to give an answer to any man who asks a reason for the hope in you. Let me ask you, how many times have you been asked 
for the reason of the hope that's in you this past week. I hope you can say many. I understand sometimes we're not even out in the public. I get that. And it doesn't mean it has to happen every day. But there should be something different about us in the way we live, in the attitudes that we have, in the actions that we do toward other men and women that cause people to say, what's different about you? What, what is it? And it's, it's within, how shall we, I like that word Chris and I often used to use, the bandwidth of all of us. And why do I say that? Because of what Peter said in the beginning. It's a faith like his. And in the same way, by the way, that Peter had from the Lord the assurance that his faith would not fail. You say, well, yeah, yeah, but the Lord prayed for him that his faith would not fail. Uh, Turn just a moment to John 17. I trust you know the context here. It's the high priestly prayer of the Lord. And we won't read it all, but drop down to verse 20. In all the things he prays there in the beginning, he says in verse 20, And I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who also believe in me through their word. Can I see... Well, I won't won't ask for a show of hands. But how many of you came to faith through the Scriptures? Right? That's the words of the apostles. And so that means if you came to faith through their word, this prayer was made for you by Jesus Christ. And listen to what he says, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. So there is a sense in which we can say that the Lord has prayed for you just like he prayed for Peter, that your faith fail not. And you can have the assurance, the assurance that your life will be as productive and as abundant and a demonstration of unfailing faith as Peter's came to be. And Peter has given us a plan for doing our part in these seven virtues. Just quickly, as I close, let me read what Peter says will take place in our lives if we practice these seven virtues. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter uses two words for knowledge in this epistle, gnosis and epinosis. And this one speaks about an intimate knowledge of Christ, an experiential knowledge of Christ. For he who lacks these things, he, these qualities, is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you, for as you, long as you practice these things, you'll never stumble. 
For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. I like the way Robertson said it. You supply the virtues. God's going to supply the entrance into the kingdom. But what Peter says here, it'll be a wide open, expansive entrance. We won't be one of those whom Jesus asked about when he said, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? We will be one of those that should the Lord come today, should the Lord come this week, when we practice these things, the Lord will indeed not only find us with faith, but with a a stalwart faith. I don't know what holds you down. I know the things that can hold me down. And I've been given by Peter how to deal with those things. Now, I can take the approach Peter took there in Luke 22 and say, Ah, no, Lord, you, you don't understand. I'll never deny you. Or I can realize that just like Peter, I have weaknesses. And I need to live in such a way that I understand the Lord knows me better than I know myself. And that what I need to do is take the wisdom from a man who once thought he knew more than the Lord. And came to understand the Lord knew more than him. I need to take his wisdom on what it means to have a strong faith. Because he's telling me the practical side of the personal side where Jesus said, your faith will never fail. As preachers, we try to cram way too much in. I understand that. But this is why I want to challenge you. Go back through the Gospels. Just just take Luke and John. Read about Peter. Write down what you see. And watch how he goes from a man of little faith. And then read these epistles. The first one you know is about suffering, right? And the second one is about how to stand against false prophets. But see what Peter learned when it comes to moving from little faith to strong faith. Because like Peter, I'm sure your pastor's desire for you is that you not succumb to false teaching. That you not be influenced by ungodliness. And it's all around you. But if your focus can be in this plan that Peter has, I believe you will find as he found and as he now rejoices in glory that God's way is the right way and the grace has been given to us and we do have the wherewithal to do these very things. I guess a good scripture to sum it up with is what Paul said in Titus. The grace of God has appeared in these last days teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly and righteous in this present age. Don't let Satan deceive you in thinking you live 
by these virtues. God never commands us to do what he does not give us the grace to do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much. We praise you. And Lord, I I don't know how I managed to get those texts and those pages out of line. But I pray that your people would themselves go to your scriptures even today or sometime this week and review what Peter has taught us here in the way of developing an unfailing and unfaltering faith that becomes not just a, an example that people or, a, or a, a hope that people ask for, but also it gives us that assurance that, that can only come when we, when we truly follow your will. In Christ's name we pray.